0: the history teacher. Trying to protect his students' innocence, he told them the ice age was really just the chilly age, a period of a million years when everyone had to wear sweaters. And the stone age became the gravel age, named for the long driveways of the time. The Spanish Inquisition was nothing more than an outbreak of questions, such as, how far is it from here to Madrid? And what do you call the matador's hat? The War of the Roses took place in a garden, and the Enola Gay dropped one tiny atom on Japan. The children would... leave his classroom for the playground to torment the weak and the smart, mussing up their hair and breaking their glasses, while he gathered up his notes and walked home, past flower beds and white picket fences, wondering if they would believe that the soldiers in the Boer War told long, rambling stories designed to make the enemy nod off.
1: Boston ancestors. I hear them behind me crossing Persian rugs on heelless shoes, drinking Dubonnet, eating nuts from the pantry the smell of stew, talking about naval battles and varsity crew, their voices raspy with cigars in underheated rooms. Someone sewed their eyes shut with needlepoint thread, And when they speak, they make up for it in booming tones. It is somewhere out of them, alive or dead, I have sprung. Yet, not a person there seems to recognize me. Not one. Personal address. To you only I speak, although you are forever changing names, places of residence, appearance, affect, reputation. When I was a child, you hovered in the rafters of the tabernacle, above the visiting evangelist's head. My mother said I should repent, and so I did. Of what? I have forgotten. I was five years old. I do remember how the tree under which she knelt and prayed with me for my salvation bore a single peach that year, the hard green bud of it. How all the summer long I watched it grow. There was something that I asked of you in that worn out orchard, although I don't remember what it was. I ask, I do know. I took the peach for answer.
0: I ask the children to imagine what life would be like 200 years ago. And I'm going to take you all to a moment almost 300 years ago. So let's imagine that we're not gathered together for worship in Kalamazoo in 2016, but gathered together for worship in New Brunswick in the New Jersey colony in 1723. Some things would be much the same. There would be hymns and music and a sermon. We would be be gathering with people we know and people we do not yet know. But some things would be very different. Now we have electric lights, central heating, most of us arrived by car. In 1723, New Brunswick was a frontier town, the far western edge of European settlement in North America. There'd be nothing like our settled, established meeting place. But perhaps the most significant difference would be that in 1723, in the church in New Brunswick, About half of you would have no idea what I am saying right now. You would not understand English. In 1723, New Brunswick was a divided town. About half of the town's residents were English-speaking Presbyterians from Ireland and Scotland, and the other half were of Dutch origin and usually worshiped in a Dutch-language reformed church. But that all changed in 1723. The two ministers in town, two of the only multilingual people in town, realized that their beliefs were very similar, so similar that they should join their churches together. They believed that their unity of belief would hold the town together as one worshiping community despite differences in language, culture, and national origin. And as they worshiped together, the service switched between English and Dutch, The sermon would be in Dutch, followed by an English language prayer. The hymns alternated languages. People endured portions of the worship service they could not understand, knowing that it was resonating with others in their community. The call to communion was always in both languages, so everyone could understand what was happening at the moment of the worship service that they considered most important. This merging of the churches in New Brunswick was one of the earliest events of the Great Awakening, a mass religious revival that swept the American colonies and much of Western Europe in the 1730s and 40s. This awakening was marked by revivals, evangelism, a new belief in the authority of the individual, emotionality, a focus on salvation, and the transgression of denominational, ethnic, racial, and class boundaries. Church historian Thomas Kidd describes it as this way. Radical evangelicals, ordained, untutored, and occasionally non-white men as pastors, they sometimes allowed women and non-whites to serve as deacons and elders. They led crowds of the poor, children, and non-whites singing through the streets They permitted Native Americans, African Americans, and women to speak in mixed congregations, and they commended their words as worthy of white male attention. They endorsed the visionary ecstatic experiences of the disenfranchised. They believed that individuals could have immediate assurance of salvation by the indwelling witness of the Spirit. They affirmed laypeople's right to critique their pastors. And in the revivals, the world seemed to turn upside down as those with the very least agency in 18th century America felt the power of God surge in their bodies. Doesn't that sound incredible? Almost like a glimpse of paradise. It sounds awfully close to the beloved community, the reign of love and justice that we yearn for. The beloved community is an idea developed by philosopher Josiah Royce and popularized by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it is a vision of a community where love and justice prevail for all people, where all people value and work for the common good. There's a spirit of kinship that connects individuals to one another across boundaries of race, class, political opinions, and all other divisions a community in which the voices and experiences of all people are valued, where the divisions between the haves and have-nots fade and equality emerges. And we're about 300 years too late. But like all stories from history, this story is not that simple. We don't get to listen to the version of history presented by the history teacher in the poem I read earlier. We need to consider the beliefs that brought these people together. And the theology that united the New Brunswick congregation and swept through the American colonies would be hard for most of us gathered here to stomach. The theology of the Great Awakening was based on the fear of a vengeful and condemning God and the threat of hell members of the movement believed in a fire and brimstone hell and that most of us are destined for eternal suffering. Fear of hell is what brought people together. They wanted to know they were saved and visions, ecstasies, mystical experiences, and dreams are what would give them that assurance of salvation. Many of the preachers of that era, including those at the church in New Brunswick, thought they could tell who was saved and who wasn't. They would stop people that they thought were unconverted, not yet saved, from receiving communion. They would stand in front of them if they stood up during the service to receive communion and block their way forward. These preachers were God's self-appointed defensive linemen. They were the 18th century equivalent of depending on who you were cheering for later today, the Carolina Panthers, Charles Johnson, Star Latulele, Kwon Short, and Jared Allen, or the Denver Bronco, Broncos, Derek Wolf, Sylvester Williams, and Malik Johnson. These preachers, like those football players, attempted to stop all who tried to move past them. As some people were not permitted to fully participate in the community, others were welcomed in. They were brought together by this fear of hell and their yearning for an experience that would prove to them they were among the saved. And this yearning for assurance of salvation brought people together to agree that is hard to understand. In the 1730s and 40s, itinerant preachers would go from town to town in the American colonies and people flocked to hear them. The estimates of crowd size are incredible. In a time when the entire population of Boston was 14,000 people, 8,000 people gathered in an open field near Boston to hear preacher George Whitfield. And this was before modern amplification technology. So I have no idea how that worked. One of my church history professors in seminary came up with his best analogy that gets close to explaining the cultural phenomenon and crowd size of the Great Awakening. He said it was as if everyone in this country who watches the Super Bowl all did so together in person. It's hard to imagine. It's also hard to imagine that that almost 300 years ago, the mass cultural experience that everyone made an effort to participate in were religious revivals. People would stop all they were doing to hear a great sermon, to participate in an altar call in hopes of having that experience that would assure them that they were saved. Our culture is not like that anymore. Now our mass cultural experiences, or what is left of them in an increasingly fragmented society, are entertainment, sometimes politics, almost never religion. Almost 300 years ago, people gathered to hear the story of the man they believed to be divine, whose body was broken for them as an act of atonement. They recreated and remembered that sacrifice in the ritual of communion. And now those of us who gather to watch the Super Bowl tonight will watch very mortal men's bodies broken for us. Know this, I love football. Growing up, my family's Super Bowl party was the highlight of my year, and I've watched the Super Bowl nearly every year since. Even when I lived in Eastern Europe, and it meant I had, the game started at 1 AM, and so a few Americans and I would gather and pull an all-nighter to watch the game. And these past few years, my team, my Seattle Seahawks, have brought such joy to my life as they have been good for once. And there are few things as comforting to me than the post-Sunday, post-Sunday service nap with the football game on. And it's becoming increasingly clear that football leaves real and lasting impact on the players' bodies and minds. It's feeling less and less ethical to be a witness to a breaking of these bodies. The repetitive brain trauma of football and other collision sports leaves many players with chronic, traumatic, and cephalopathy. Oh, I practiced that word and still (laughs) couldn't get it. It's a disease that symptoms include dementia, aggression, memory loss, and depression. And some researchers believe now that up to 80% of professional football players contract this illness. And so I'm not telling you to cancel your Super Bowl plans, because I know if my Seahawks would be, were playing, I would watch every single minute. But I'm really starting to wonder if their sacrifice is worth it. Is it possible to watch watch football ethically now, knowing what we know about its long-term impacts? I'm not sure. And if we as individuals stop watching, that probably isn't enough anyway. That might be more about our need for purity than creating real and lasting change that would save these men's bodies and brains? And can we accept that adults, knowing what we know now, can make the choice to continue to play this sport, trading passion for football and money for lasting brain damage? There are so many choices that we allow one another to make that are unhealthy. So football might just be one more. I'm really grappling with this, and I would love to hear how you guys are, are, because it's really challenging for me. But back to the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening shaped our culture deeply. The authority of the individual preached during this time influenced the philosophy on which our democracy is based. Methodist and Baptist churches, the two biggest branches of Protestantism in this country, grew dramatically from the revivals. And the idea of church shopping, checking out a few congregations before deciding which one you would attend, largely started in the Great Awakening. Before then, people would attend at the church closest to them, usually because it was the only church available, or at least the only church nearby where their language was spoken. The revivals of the Great Awakening left new congregations in their wake, giving residents choice of where to worship for one of the first times in history. So those of us who passed by other congregations on our way here this morning owe a debt to the revivalists of the Great Awakening. There were people who opposed the Great Awakening. And we as Unitarian Universalists should pay special attention to them. Though there weren't people in the New world who identified as Unitarian at this point in history, that would happen a generation or two later. There were people beginning to write and preach and teach Unitarian ideas. And since they influenced the people who later claimed the name Unitarian, they are our spiritual ancestors. Centered in Boston, they are a collective. Boston ancestors, and it is somewhere out of them, alive or dead, that we have sprung. While these early Unitarians opposed the theology of the Great Awakening, they focused most of their opposition on the style of the revivals and the people involved in them. They didn't think uneducated people, women, and people of color should preach. The Unitarians were rigid in this point, The universalists, as we heard earlier in the children's story, were open to preachers of more diverse identities. When I first discovered this aspect of our shared history, I wished for a history from the poem taught by the history teacher in our poem. I wanted our ancestors to be heroes and history to make me feel good. But history is not like that. It is always more complicated. The people who would become Unitarians were heavily invested in the status quo. They were elite and elitist. Their ministers were graduates of Harvard or Yale. If you didn't have a degree, you didn't belong in a pulpit, they would say. They also hated the emotionality of the Great Awakening. For them, religion was an intellectual pursuit. Being religious involved the study of the scriptures and their original Greek and Hebrew, reading the work of theologians and making rational cases for belief. While we now affirm the priesthood and prophethood of all, the idea that each of us knows religious truth and has the authority to speak and act on our understanding of the truth, those almost Unitarians of the 1740s weren't sure about that. They did not approve of people preaching sermons about their experience or visions of heaven and hell. For them, sermons should have footnotes, be rooted in the authority of scholars and not individual experience. They did not think sermons should bring everyone in the church to emotional ecstasy. All of these things threatened the established churches and the way they thought things should be done. It was not until I was in a Unitarian Universalist history class in seminary that I learned about these times when Unitarians, Universalists, and Unitarian Universalists behaved in ways that I am not proud of. The UU history that I was taught as a child in Sunday school was an unbroken line of saints and heroes. The kind of feel-good history of that history teacher from the poem. I was proud to have a kinship with the famous Unitarians, Universalists and Unitarian Universalists listed on a hot pink t-shirt that I proudly wore. And perhaps that is the right history to teach our children, a history that fills them with esteem for this polysyllabic religion that no one else in school has ever heard of. (laughs) But that is not the whole story. We cannot live with only the happy history. We need to know that real complicated story of our denominational history, a story of people who fall short of their ideals, who make mistakes, who try their best and sometimes fail spectacularly. There are a lot of moments in our religious histories that do not instill esteem, but much more complicated emotions. In addition to being anti-slavery activists, American Unitarians were also among the leading advocates for the slave system. It was Unitarian President Millard Fillmore who signed the Fugitive Slave Act. The American Unitarian Association in the decades after the Civil War volunteered to civilize, that's in heavy quotes, the Northern Ute Tribe of Colorado and Utah on behalf of the federal government an effort that ended in massacre and removal from ancestral land. Universalists have supported industry titans over striking workers, and the first people of color to enter our ministry struggled against institutional obstacles ranging from indifference to hostility. These are hard histories, and I hope to explore them with you in the coming years. Many of us Struggle when we learn these histories. But with time, at least for me, this knowledge make, makes me more deeply connected to our shared faith. I like the stories that are complicated because the story of my life and the stories of our lives together are complicated. And when our stories about our religious tradition are complicated, it is easier to find a place in this community. We know that our complications will blend together with everyone else's in our tradition, past and present. It's easier to create the next chapter in our shared history if we remember that the previous chapters are not full of saints, but faithful and fallible people like us. So to close, I want to leave you with a vision of a future chapter in our shared story. We dream and work and yearn for the Beloved Community, for the reign of love and justice, for those glimpses of paradise. This is another time and place to imagine ourselves, since it hasn't happened yet. We can't know the details. The Beloved Community, like the revivals during the Great Awakening, unite people across race, gender, ethnicity, class, and every other division but our vision is not of the 18th century. Perhaps we dream of a great banquet, the welcome table filled with all kinds of people. People who know salvation and spiritual truths, but maybe not the same spiritual truth. People whose actions are guided not by a fear of hell, but the desire to love the hell out of this world. People who are saved by love, by forgiveness, by hope, by the truth as they understand it, by the indwelling witness of the spirit, by a single peach. People who know these truths in their hearts and minds and bodies. And at this table, at this banquet, there are no Super Bowl defensive linemen blocking those who believe differently than they do, judging who is worthy and who is not worthy. At this table, we are all complicated We are all welcome, and we are all beloved. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.